Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to the ESPN Footy Podcast for another week. Proudly sponsored by Subway, nothing's as big as a foot long. Matt Walsh here, we've got a huge episode ahead so do stick around. We're going to talk some bombers, we're going to talk the cats, Gold Coast and a lot more. We're uh, answering your questions from Twitter as well. In addition, we've got a special guest joining us today, Rowan Connolly. Jake is a laid out, so you've been called up. You're the super sub. Uh, how's things uh, down your way? Yeah, pretty ordinary, Matt. I'm an Essendon supporter. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think uh, we'll get into that a bit later as well. Well, we, we will. Um, oh, look, it's an interesting season. I'm enjoying seeing some different teams at the top of the ladder. Um, got some concerns about the sort of footy we're watching. Just it feels like there's a lot of one-sided games and beltings at the moment. We've got a couple of uncompetitive teams at the bottom. That's never good. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm enjoying seeing the likes of Freo doing well and, you know, Gold Coast finding a bit. You know, that's always good. So, you can um, mention Carlton, Rowan. No, I didn't. And that wasn't deliberate. No, look, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm perish the thought. I'm even enjoying watching the Blues. They play a really attractive brand and they're exciting. And, um and no, there's a lot of good people at Carlton. Look, I'm past all those childish hatreds, Matt. Christian Jolly from Champion Data, you've had a big weekend because we've uh, we've forwarded through, we've forwarded through even uh, a few questions from Twitter, Ask Champion Data questions, and you can keep sending those in to everyone at home. Uh, use the hashtag Ask Champion Data on Twitter and tweet us at Footy Tips. But Christian, uh, we've got about five or six or even even more questions lined up with uh, some interesting little. Things that have been thrown at you, uh, you didn't. We weren't un, you weren't inundated by this sort of stuff. Were you? you looking forward to getting some responses out there? Yeah, no, it wasn't wasn't uh, too strenuous. Some of the queries, but yeah, some interesting interesting questions being asked by the public. Mm. Uh, before we get into the main body of the podcast, guys, something you noticed from round nine that took your attention, Christian? I might start with you. Uh, yeah, so we sort of I uh, know last week we finally resolved the Jared. Now I have to say his surname. I think of it. Jared Leanit. Leanit. We'll go with Leanit. Uh, the photo, um, Port Adelaide Guernsey and, and the St Kilda list. Uh, well, Patrick Nash was probably even one step further. He was a top-up player for West Coast. Added to their list, I think it was three days before their first preseason game uh, against West Coast. But his uh, jumper took a few weeks to arrive. So he wore 36 uh, in rounds one to two, which is Connor West's number. I think Connor West came into the team, which moved Patrick Nash to number 28 for rounds three to eight. Uh, finally got his Guernsey 43 uh, this week, um, he was wearing. So, yeah, finally got his Guernsey. I think it's take just, yeah, COVID and, um, you know. The printing uh, presses in Perth aren't working? Well, What's yeah, I think it there? was. It was just the deliveries hadn't arrived. So there was a few of the top-up players there. Jumpers didn't arrive the week off. But, yeah, looking at Patrick Nash as well, sort of, as I said, he's gone through the three three jumper numbers, but he's also played all nine games for West Coast. So he's the only player on their list that's played every game for him. Um, and as I said, this is a guy that was signed three days before they started their first preseason game. In the off-season, he delisted by Richmond at the end of 21, spent six weeks training with Norwood, two weeks with St Kilda, gets a call up to fly over to Perth, had to sort of isolate once you got to Perth because all the COVID stuff, finally got out of isolation. And yeah, it was about two days with the club before he... Uh, Put on his put on his jumper, which wasn't the right jumper in the preseason, and got going, and hasn't missed a game since. Don't you love it when AFL footy approximates suburban footy with stories like that? Just very quickly, my favourite Guernsey number story um, back in the mid eighties, nineteen eighty five. There was a guy who came out of the amateurs and played for Collingwood. Andrew Witz played his first uh, couple of games in number sixty five, 
and he made a real impression on him, such a big impression that they uh, he graduated to number 49 for the rest of the, <laughs> of the season. Um, I'm trying to think what the highest number might be currently in the AFL. Well, 50 would have to be up there. Marlon Pickett, ben, uh, Brown. ben Brown. I'm not sure if there's any beyond 50, Christian, just off the top of your head. You're, you're the well, numbers, I think Yeah, I think Ben Brown was the highest. Um, What's the highest? Uh, uh, Sean Wren was 52, was he? Yeah, gee, that'd be an interesting one. For I remember uh, when, Mal, can... when Mal Brown was captain coach at Claremont, he wore number 100. <laughs> We've seen a trend <laughs> in American sports where where the number zero is, is worn as well, going down oh, yeah. to the other end. I find that interesting. And in the yeah. NFL, players that switch teams, um, depending on, on how rich they are, they, they literally offer money to players that have their number already to swap. I don't know really? if we'll find that throughout, throughout the <laughs> AFL, but that could be an interesting development. Uh, Rowan, something from the weekend that took your attention? Um, well, I, I don't want to harp on about this particular club or, or game, but the Dyson Heppel entrance to the SCG for his 200th, that was a bit different, wasn't it? It was like the cavalcade of family and friends. And look, you don't want to be a crotchety old bugger. I mean, it was, you know, good luck to him. But I, I guess the timing wasn't necessarily great. Um, it certainly became ammunition for people talking about the club and its various weaknesses. Mm. But, you know, by the same token, it's been a long journey, 200 games. You want to have the people have helped you that are integral to that journey, part of it. Do they need to form a, a guard of honour? And if you're going to do that for 200 games, what do you do when you're Dustin Fletcher and play your 400th? Do we get a, a brass band and fireworks? I don't know. <laughs> you get up at, at the crack of dawn, have a cup of tea at the footy club. I think that's what he did, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it's... um. Yeah, look, each to their own, but yeah, he's he's a lovely guy, Dyson. We we know, you know, he, he's one of the uh, the nice guys in footy, and uh, meant a lot to him and those people involved. But um, yeah, as as events panned out, uh, I, I must admit, a lot of people sort of thought back to him and thought, mm, is that is that the sort of tone you needed to set? Mm. The, the funny thing is, though, I guess with with things like this, is uh, if they win, no one probably talks about it. Correct. But and the he, way the he bombers are going, yeah, no, correct. Like uh, yeah. Something I noticed. This is this was interesting, and credit to my old man for this. He he flagged this. But on Saturday, when St Kilda was playing Geelong, uh, I received a message from him, and he said, "If you've got a spare five minutes while you're watching the footy, you should look look at the AFL app because while you can listen." to the radio calls on the AFL app. So there's this little listen button. You click that and you got all the, you know, 6BR, ABC, 3AW, Triple M, whoever it might be. Um, but interestingly for that Geelong St Kilda match, there was also the option to have Spanish radio. Oh, really? And so I tuned in for about five <laughs> minutes listening to the Spanish call of, of the Saints versus the Cats. And it was very out of place. And it was amusing to me because the the thing that I noticed that was quite funny was I, I've got no idea. I've, my Spanish is non-existent, you know, um, Gracias. Is that That's is surprising? That, <laughs> but but that like every now and then in in amongst these sort of big descriptive long sentences, you just hear Geelong or St Kilda or Max King. Did I do and, the um? Did I do the South American thing? Goal! I did wait for a goal, but they did not do that. It was more right. of just a, a short little shot. But I did only tune in for five minutes. So if there was a big moment, perhaps the the goal was brought out. Uh, but I found that I found that fascinating, and I know that they've done that in the past with. Um, a number of different languages over like um, international like heritage weeks and all this sort of stuff where they've had, I know they've had callers uh, with some Indian languages uh, like Punjabi and they've had, um, I'm pretty sure like Malay or Indonesian, uh, Chinese, Mandarin, other ones. But um, yeah, I wasn't sure that was linked, but I think it was just Spanish radio were in the in town and decided to broadcast the Saints versus the Cats. And 
was a pretty good game to broadcast in the end. It was. Oh, yeah, uh, that, that was a good game. Look, let's get let's get started with the main body of the podcast. Rowan, fortuitous that you're on this week. Um, we we did talk about the Bombers a little bit last week and, and whether that win over Hawthorne is you know a bit of a turning point for them this season or or what would what it would bring the next week against the Swans. And traditionally the Bombers and Swans have played some pretty good outings, some pretty close matches, kind of regardless of where both sides are on the ladder. But what they ended up dishing up on uh, on Saturday night was was unfortunately pretty atrocious. And and you know, you're a, a strong bombers man and have been pretty strong on, on social media in particular about this club. But firstly on the nature of the loss to the Swans, the non-existent pressure, the the 30 tackle count, you know, what 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 when you look at this club, where are they? Oh, they're they're in the wilderness. It's uh, by so far the the worst period in Essendon's history. You know, it's hard to quantify. I mean, it's the longest premiership drought, but it's far more than that. You know, like I, I grew up in the seventies when they were pretty ordinary, but it was always at least a, a strong club. Um, and I don't think it's a strong club now. And I think part of that is a reaction to the supplement saga. You know, they had to, you know, had to be seen to be a solid citizen and. I think that was taken too far and, and you know, I don't even blame them particularly for that. But I think, I think, uh, and then these issues were festering for me long before the supplement saga. This is really sort of post that 2000 flag. It became a very self-satisfied club, a club that sort of lives off its history and it's doing that to an enormous extent now. And this ironically is 150th anniversary and it's, I think a lot of supporters now are getting a bit annoyed about that, that, you know, don't give us this stuff. We don't, we're not going to get sucked in by that. Give us something now. You know, we haven't seen a premiership for 22 years. Hmm. But I, I thought that performance on Saturday night said it all really about the culture of that club. And that is, it was a really immature response that went over Hawthorne. You know, you, it was celebrated like it was a, a grand final. You had the CEO and the president standing in the race, you know, clapping the boys off and, uh, the coach on the ground embracing players. You know, it was a win over a middle-of-the-road team uh, off the back of, of one decent quarter. And mm. it shouldn't it shouldn't have taken them to be in the position they were to elicit that effort. And then you give that effort and it's sort of like there's this subconscious relaxing again. Oh, okay, now it'll just look after itself. Well, it doesn't. Sydney were always going to be fired up having lost two at home. So it just it spoke volumes about the lack of commitment, the lack of support for teammates, the confusion about the brand they're playing. Mm. Having said all that, Matt, uh, and I keep this is what I keep banging on about on social media that to focus on the list and the coach and whatever now, it's just looking at the symptoms and not the cause because all those things, you know, you can say all this stuff about sides under Warsfold, about under Matthew Knights. Um, if, underheard for a different reason, but it is all symptomatic of a club that has forgotten the sort of standards you need to drive success. And I think it's, um, you know, look, this is harsh stuff, but I, I think there's people in positions of power of that club that simply have to go and they don't go. And why don't they go? Because the culture isn't strong enough to say, listen, thanks but it's time to move on. You know, Adrian Dodoro, you've got a list and recruiting manager who's been there for 22 years, despite, you know, very minimal success in terms of achieving results. You've got a CEO who was a junior uh, administrator bought in at the height of the supplement scandal, did a good job getting him out of that. 
but his his want to interfere in football matters has been really damaging. You've had this production line of football department officials, you know, Neil Craig, Mark Neal, Dan Richardson, Josh Marnie, and, and Essendon keep looking for scapegoats in the football department when the people making these decisions are let off the hook. Why are they let off the hook? Well, they've got a very compliant board. Mm. Well, uh, I think... Yeah, go on. I, I could speak uninterrupted for two hours, so you better keep asking me questions. Well, I think before we kind of get more to the off-field, I think the, the on-field doesn't concern me as much. And I know that there's there's probably a lack of that older talent, the mature talent. You look at someone like Dylan Shield, who they brought in, who probably just hasn't delivered to the, the standards that we would expect. Dyson Heppel, obviously 200 games, but you can kind of just tell that he's he's a he's a bruised man he, he has been battered from pillar to post for seasons you know from this club um mcgrath does that maybe, sound familiar his predecessor is skipper same thing happened to him this this is the thing however i kind of look at the youth of the club and think the last two or three off seasons who they've managed to bring in uh to, to sort of safeguard the future it looks pretty good so i can kind of see the rosiness on on the horizon and so it tells me that last year's finals making performance may have been not a mistake, but it, it would have raised the hopes of Bombers fans, maybe falsely, just knowing that they're probably not that club and they they might have not accidentally fallen into a spot there. But, you know, making finals probably wasn't the best thing for that club at the time. Uh, no, I couldn't agree more with that. And again, symptomatic of the weak culture is the fact that clearly a few guys in that list got ahead of themselves and thought, oh, gee, we're finalists now. And yeah, I, I, I keep thinking back to that first game this season against Geelong. And that was a real shock to them. You know, it was sort of like, oh, we are so far off the pace. And it was a shock to a lot of supporters as well. But um, they're, they're not a strong club. A strong club uh, sort of sees these potential obstacles coming and deals with them. And, and, and they don't. They fall in time and time again. Even that influx of young players. And, yeah, I agree. Last year was a, a promising year and it, it gave the likes of me hope. But why did that happen? I mean... That exodus of players, you know, Danaher, Fantasia, Connor McKenna going home, that was a, a bad thing to happen. But it sort of forced a change, a change that probably wouldn't have happened had they not left. So it almost sort of happened by accident, mm. that um, revolution with the young players. Christian, can you kind of wrap up the, the Bombers' issues in terms of an on-field? What are they doing well, but what are they not doing well? What, what's kind of the main symptomatic cause of, of this sort of like lack of effort, lack of pressure? Well, I think you just hit the nail on the head there. It's, 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 first thing I look at is the pressure and the tackling numbers. They're, they're the lowest. So they last in the competition for tackles and last for pressure factors. So again, being in bottom for tackles isn't always a disaster. So Melbourne, I think, a third last and Carlton a fourth last. Um, Richmond a second last. So they're a little bit of an issue for them. But Carlton and Melbourne obviously got more of the ball than their opposition. So they're gonna their tackle numbers are lower. Um, whereas Essendon, yeah, negative for disposals per game plus last in tackles. Um, and as I said, tackles just one of those raw numbers. So you look at overall pressure, which includes all the times you chase and corral, and there's other ways to sort of create a turnover. They're last in that as well. So again. Looking at team averages and highlighting them, they're sort of lucky that North and West Coast exist this year. So they're, they're 16th for contested possession differential. Only those two teams are below them. They're 16th for scoring once inside 50 differential with only those two teams below them. But again, it comes back to North Melbourne and West Coast are without the ball. They seem to be still putting pressure on, tackling, trying to do that defensive stuff. Essendon, are, again, another number that sort of looks good but worries me when you match it up. 
number one for disposal efficiency. So when they have the ball, they're the best at using it. They don't miss targets. But again, they're not high scorers and they're so low in tackles. So yeah, they're hitting targets, but they're not really going forward and doing much damage with it. And then when they don't have the ball, it's sort of, well, the work rate and work effort just doesn't seem to be there. But again, yeah. even just looking at the age, I mean, it's probably, I know Rowan's a very passionate Bomber supporter and he's talking more 30, 20 years cumulative. This year and, you know, this round alone, they were the third youngest team, Adelaide, and I think North Melbourne would blow them. So they are, they, and we're right, they, they sort of peaked a little bit too early last year, got everyone's hopes up, and I was big. I thought they'd make finals as well. But when you do take a step back and look at where they are, again, just looking at list in terms of where they are and their demographic is with the rest of the competition, they are in the bottom four or five for experience and that. So there is, there's plenty to work with. And again, you know, uh, as, as I said, Rowan's probably looked at, you know, the past and the exhaustedness of having to always wait for something just around the corner. But there is, there's that, there's that young talent there. Um, you know, and we spoke about it last year, the amount of guys that played less than a hundred games that were sort of in their best 22 are still in there, mm. but it is, there's sort of that whole, where is their game plan going yeah, with, with it on the field? You can be low on talent and you can be low on experience, but I think something that you can bring as a 22, regardless of who's on the pitch, who's on the field, Rowan is, is effort. And, and Christian just highlighted some, some stats there that just show the effort's not there. And, you know, we saw Dyson Heppel on, on the couch last night, had a really passionate, probably one of the most open and raw conversations I think I've seen from a, from a club skipper, uh, in, you know, in the last sort of 10 plus years since I've really been sort of paying attention to this kind of stuff. He was really raw about it. It obviously hurts them, right? Um, but why is there a disconnect between the effort that, that's being placed on the field? He had zero tackles uh, against the Swans. Why is there a disconnect there? Why is Ben Rutten unable to get the best from an effort perspective out of this club? You kind of touched on the link between the, 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 the foot, football department and the management department, Rowan. Like, where do you kind of see these linked? Well, again, you know, I hate to keep using this word, but it's a cultural thing. And the number of players who have come into Essendon from other clubs and remarked upon how far behind standards were in terms of intensity of training, you know, expectations on the field. Um, you know, Paul Chapman, for example, when he retired, I think gave a fairly impassioned um, speech to teammates about this. It's like, and Dyson, you know, look, he's a lovely guy, Dyson. He's done his absolute best in that place, but he's come into a club that was already on the wane and has become a leader of a club. So the standards that he, I suspect, honestly thinks, you know, this is the hardest I can be, and the, it's not enough. Mm. But they don't have those guys who've been vested with success to pass those lessons on. And this is what Essendon had for years and years and years, you know, the – the Danahers passed them on to the the Bomber Thompsons, uh, the Mark Harveys, who passed them on to the Gary O'Donnells, and the um, and and it goes from generation to generation. And I know that all you know that those generations I'm talking about, they are bleeding about this because they can see these standards that took decades to instill in this club um, have been eroded to the point where the guys carrying the flag now honestly don't know what they need to be to be able to lead this change. Mm. Look, I, I think, you know, there's a couple of things here. Um, 2017 was a line in the sand moment for Essendon. They did all right. They made the finals, but they got smashed. Now, I know for a fact that there is a, a, a faction in that club that said, look, we've got to be honest with ourselves. We're a long way off the pace. We've got to keep building with youth. 
and they were overridden by the group that said, no, we're not far off, we want to load up. So they went out and they got Smith, Sard, Stringer, Shield the following year. Now, look, you know, Stringer's been great for them. But Smith, after that first year, yeah, he's had injury problems, but he's been disappointing. Dylan Shield, there's no way of sugarcoating that, been a real disappointment. Now, these become your senior players. Are the standards that they're driving enough? Patently, they're not. Are these guys that care enough about that club? I would question it. You know, they could have gone young, built up a formidable group of young players. So you're not just talking about Cox, mm. Perkins, Jones. You're talking about seven or eight players. This is what Clarkson did at Hawthorne. It takes guts to do it, but Essendon as a club is always trying to hedge its bets. They're paranoid of saying to their support base, it's going to take some time. They always want to leave that crumb of hope. Yeah. And it means that they chicken out from making the tough decisions. So it, it, it sounds like you, and, and on social media, I've noticed this as well. You're pretty, um, I guess, critical of a number of decisions that have been made from non, non-players, like, you know, these off-field types, these, um, you know, the, the president down to the CEO, the list manager you mentioned, Adrian Dodoro. Is, is this kind of where the problem lies for you? And, and what do you do to fix it then as, as a football club? There's no doubt where the problem lies. I mean, you know, like, I don't want to sound like Pot Xavier Campbell show, but, um, you know, all those football department appointments I spoke about, they've come from him. Um, Mm. There's a, you know, there's a history of people who have challenged decision-making being ostracised and then essentially flicked from the club. We had this sham of a review at the end of 2020 and I was, part, I was part of it. I was one of the people they went and spoke to about what are our problems, what do you think? I, like a lot of – and look, don't get me wrong, I'm not big noting myself. You know, people with far bigger names and, and have done far more for SM than I have invested a lot of time and energy into finding answers to this stuff, and they were paid lip service. You know, they had the yeah. meetings. They went away and said, oh, this is valuable stuff. Well, you know, someone will be in touch. No one got in touch. They made a few superficial changes. And um, and and it just life goes on with those same office holders still in charge without ever pointing the finger at themselves. And this is why they don't want an independent review because the answers would inevitably be, "Hey guys, time to go." Yeah. So clearly, it sounds like that you've been involved in that process. You, you've seen how it was sort of just given the cold shoulder. Is it? Is it? Is do you have ambitions to be this kind of person to sort of force the change and and actually? take a look at the broader issue and, and take a, a wider approach instead of just focusing on the, on the right now and let's build? Oh, from a, an emotional point of view, yeah. Um, Could you see yourself on a ticket like that one day? <laughs> well, I'd, yeah, look, I mean, you know, in one, from one point of view, yeah, I, I could. And, uh, you know, I sort of hesitate to say this because everyone <laughs> hates journos and, uh, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm an opinionated person and I know there's, you know, the, there's not a lot of love for me necessarily out there, but, you know, I don't think anyone could question my love of that club and my um, angst about what's happening now. And if I could do anything to help, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do that. And that's why I, I sort of wanted to be part of that process. But when mm. you see the best intentions of people sort of sidelined because, other people are more worried about protecting their positions, uh, you start to get a bit angsty about it. Now, this is important too. One of the issues here for any would-be group of challenges to the status quo 
is that over a number of years now, the board has progressively shored up its own position, uh, i.e. changed the constitution so that um, new directors coming on would be board appointed rather than member elected. And I can't, the numbers aren't off the top of my head, but the balance has now swung around so that the majority of the board now is appointed from within, not voted on by the membership. So that's a problem. An alternative ticket, you know, would have to have the requisite big S and names that, you know, the, the less critical thinking of the membership would go, oh, gee, you know, I'll vote for him because he uh, got 30 kicks in the 1993 grand final. Who's in your Rolodex? Um, but, but this is why the board, why the administration appointed Kevin Sheedy to the board or, uh, sorry, uh, had him run in an elected position. So he was always going to get in there. And, look, I love Sheeds, you know, no bigger name in Essendon's history, but he would know himself that he is just a token board appointment there and there to appease the masses. And if an alternative ticket runs against the incumbent board, they're going to be running against Kevin Sheedy. Does anyone really want to do that? Because you, your chances of success are minimal and you'll end up becoming a villain. I'm mm. already a villain, so maybe I could do it. But, look, in answer to your question, and, yeah, I know, I can see people listening, sitting here listening to this going, you're a wanker, Connolly. Well, maybe I am, but I love this club. It's ripped my heart out watching what's become of it. And most of all, it's ripped my heart out feeling this complete lack of um, hope about the future because I see the same mistakes being made. And that's why people can talk on and on and on about this group of players, this coaching group, this list, what needs to happen, but it's all symptoms. And you could you could get the 1948 Australian Invincibles led by Don Bradman playing for this club at the moment, and they would underperform because the mechanisms and the, um, the um, functions aren't in place to allow them a chance of doing their best. And things aren't going to improve substantially until those positions at the top change. That's some pretty strong stuff. Um, we'll keep on top of this, you know, however the future goes. And, and feel free to flick the exclusive to us, Rowan, when you do announce a ticket. Uh, <laughs> we'll stay on top of that. Um, Christian, we'll bring you back in. Ask Champion Data Questions. We had a ton of them come in on Twitter. Uh, and like I said off the top, you can um, you can you can keep sending them through hashtag Ask Champion Data or tweet us at Footy Tips for anything any queries you may have for Christian or for Champion Data, and we can get them answered throughout the week and on the podcast. Um, we might as well get cracking straight in. First one off the off, off first cab off the rank rather uh, Chouch on Twitter with the Leon Cameron sacking. Are there stats on coach farewell games and for the week after when to say a caretaker comes in? Yeah, so. Do they perform? Do clubs perform better? I looked at both. So again, so looked at the. We'll start with the farewell. So we'll start with the uh, Leon Cameron side of things. So ran a query just to look at coaches that had coached their last game before the final round of the season. So that ended up at some point during the season. Some of those were either, either their own decision, or some of them were pushed or sacked or all different reasons. But um, yeah, it's sort of as you'd expect from an outgoing coach. Three of the past thirty-one outgoing coaches have won their final game. Oh, wow. Um, which not many. Oh, sorry, sorry, I haven't added Leon Cameron to that. So three out of 32 will make that now. With uh, Nathan Buckley, obviously, was the most recent one before Cameron. Round 32, 30. Christian. Does that go back to, what, Dick Reynolds? Uh, no, nah, it goes back to Bernie Quinlan in 95. Yeah, right. Um, right. Same year in 95, John Norley took over uh, for Richmond um, and he drew his game. So I've sort of stopped it there. But you can keep going back with a whole lot of L's um, all the way back through to, yeah, the 60s almost. So... 
Yeah, Nathan Buckley did it, as I said, round 13 last year. I think everyone sort of remembers that game. Um, two years prior, Brad Scott also sort of said farewell in uh, mm. round 10 for North Melbourne and got the win. Um, so, so maybe those, a bit of recency bias there with yeah, that kind of recent months. So two of the past four, well, again, adding Cameron in now is two of the past five have also have won their final game. The only one, the only one that adds to that three is Gary Ayres won his final game as coach of Adelaide round 13, 2004. But I sort of read the story on that one last night and he won the game. Um, and they sort of still weren't going to renew his contract for the end of the year. And he walked in, I think at the start of the week and said, I, I want a contract for next year. I'm walking now. And, they sort of said we're not going to resign. We're not going to resign you for next year. So he walked out of the club. So it wasn't like he got sacked or anything. So he he walked away after a one hundred and thirty three to one hundred one point victory. So yeah, outgoing coaches obviously you know there's a, probably a reason why they're outgoing. So they what about been, the dead cat bounce? Yeah. Sorry, the dead cat bounce of a of a club who's just sacked their coach and then the caretaker comes in the next week. Yeah, so this is where you get a few more. Uh, a few more favorable, favorable results, including three of the past four. So we saw Brett Ratton when he took over round 18, uh, 2019. The Saints got the win. David Teague took over round 12 in 2019 for Carlton, got the win. Reece Shaw took over in round 11 for North Melbourne. Um, as we sort of said, we spoke about Brad Scott getting the win in his farewell game. Well, Reece Shaw backed it up with a win in his first game. Uh, but yeah, the most recent one was last year, Robert Harvey. Um, Cop Donnell uh, the week after Nathan Buckley finished up. So... Yeah, again, three out of the past four, even can add that to four of the past six of one. So, yeah, in recent times seems to be the, uh, yeah, the old bounce back does have sort of a bit of a case. I think I think it's a little bit of a moot point this week, isn't it? Because uh, Mark McVeigh gets his first game. Uh, sorry. Uh, yes. Yeah, gets his first game against West Coast this week. So, <laughs> um, I can almost Could be patting the stats. Another, yeah, another win for him there. So Maybe Leon should have held off one more week to add to that three of 32. Well, I did. I did look at. I did look at that tongue in cheek when I saw that he was resigning. I'm like, why won't you resign after the West Coast game? Give yourself, give yourself <laughs> a chance to coach against West Coast, and then step away then. But yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how McVeigh goes this week. There you go, um, Alex David on Twitter. Which players' clearances have the highest percentage that result in a score for their team? Yeah, good one. So again, we we talk about score sources. Um, Three ways a team can generate a score. You either intercept the ball uh, or score from a turnover, you score from a clearance or score from a kick in. So looking at the players that have done it, um, again, two ways to look at it. So if you just look at raw percentage of clearances, uh, Chad Warner's the number one player. So 15 of his 25 clearances um, have led to a goal. So this is looking at uh, at least 20 clearances uh, across the season, which is 103 players yep. who had the best strike rate. So 60% of Chad Warner's clearances lead to a Sydney goal, 55% for Sam Sukowski. So I'm a sh- it's a shame that Jake's sick today. So you can uh, bring up Sam Sukowski again. In the is this goals or is this scores? These are scores out of the... So, right, apologies. so Chad Warner wins the clearance. Yeah. Um, and 60% Sydney will score by the score, end of the right, okay. Yeah, yep. was getting it. Uh, Sukowski, 55%. And Jai Caldwell, uh, 52%. So... Um, which is your 14 of his 27 clearances. So again, those guys have won 25 clearances, 20 clearances. If you're just looking at total, again, it comes out to the two best midfielders. So 21 score launches from McRae and Clayton Oliver from clearances this year. So obviously their percentages aren't as high as Warner and Sitkowski, but they've done it more times. So again, you know, it always gets thrown in. Who's the best player for scoring from clearances? We'll take your pick. Is it the best player? Is it the guy that does it the most? Mm. Or is it the guy that has the highest percentage from his opportunities type thing? But uh, as I said, yeah, McRae and Oliver leading the competition with 21 scores. It, it wouldn't surprise me, though, that if Sam Switkowski's winning a clearance, it's probably in the front half. And so if you win a clearance in the front half, you're probably more likely to be 
on the end of a scoring chain by the end of it than you are yeah, if you say getting a clearance in the back pocket. Yeah, and and a lot of it is to do with yeah, it's it's almost out of your hands. Once you win the clearance, you, you can win a, a clean clearance and get it sixty meters forward. But if your teammate drops the mark or fumbles it out of bounds, that's not your fault. But it doesn't lead to a score and sort of thing. So it does take a it, you know takes a lot of extra luck to sort of get your score on the scoreboard. But again, it does show you the guys that do move into valuable positions once you get a big sample size. Uh, here's one. Was this from your burner, Rowan? Why doesn't Champion Data share data more freely with us harmless chump analysts who just want some free and frequent footy stats from the hey, footy cast on Twitter? It wasn't from me. I, I I pay for a subscription to Champion Data and I, I get... Kristen sends me the KPIs. I always want more than I can afford. Yeah. But, uh... <laughs> um, and again, yeah, I'll probably answer this every year, but it is, it's, I mean, it's a business economic, it's basic economics. Um, Pretty simple, isn't it? <laughs> costs money to capture the stats. So again, um, talking about our business model again, we, when we first came around for champion data, we were for the clubs. We just wanted to capture live data for the coaches in the coaches box to help them win a game of football. Obviously from that media, obviously want to get live stats and things like this, this is back in 99. So TV would have wanted it up on their TV screen and newspapers would have wanted to print it after the game. Then things became more live, um, obviously, with, yeah, you know, your, your live um, score centres and things like that, AFL.com and ESPN and all that have the live score tickers and things like that. So they're all sort of part of the customers as well. But, again, it's all sort of based on we're wholesalers. So we'll we'll produce the stats and sort of, you know, release the stats feed. But it is, it's, it's the clubs that sort of pay money for that stat so they can sort of go through and find all the things they need to do to win a game of footy. Mm. The media pays for their different type of stat level. So I know the Herald Sun, one of the highest sort of spenders with us because they get a lot of sort of exclusive stats. I know they had matchup stats. I think they were, they had them exclusive for five years. So they sort of paid for that. So again, go back to the other way. It's uh, 12 people now, I think per game, Um, you know, so it's probably costing us about just per game. Again, rough estimate, maybe, $2,000 per game just to pay the staff for that game. That's not even taking into account the, you know, the equipment and the the warehousing of the data and all the other things that, you know, take the houses. So again, basically if you want, you know, the the short answer is if you wanted free footy stats, we'd have to get those, those 12 people would have to be unpaid volunteers. You wouldn't get the same consistency. You probably wouldn't get the 12 roles filled each week. So it's sort of just a, just the, yeah, it's basically a yeah, champion data as a wholesaler and we're dealing with the clubs and the media. Um, has has yeah. the AFL ever offered to purchase the, the company or has there been has there ever been chat about something like that to make yeah, it kind so, of incorporated? No, champion data are, so 48% uh, have, a, I think it's 48% stake in champion data now. So we've got two board members um, that are from the AFL. So they are sort of part owners of the company, I think five yeah. to eight years ago around that time. So they are part of it, but again, they're sort of it's sort of independent to us. Um, again, they, they they yeah sort of own the company and things like that. But again, all of our commercial deals and th- things are done are done directly f- via Champion Data with the clubs or via Champion Data with the Herald Sun. They sort of know, and again, even dealing with the clubs, a lot of them are sort of thankful that they don't have to deal with the AFL to deal <laughs> with us, if that makes sense. Because you're dealing with the AFL for everything else, so it's sort of like, yeah. well, we don't want to, we want to get different stat service to, you know, West Coast wants something slightly different to Frio, who wants something slightly different to Adelaide. But if you go through the AFL, it's like, well, here's your standard package. You can all have that. As I said, there's always um, tinkering and things like that. But, yeah, sort of long-winded answer. But, again, it, it, it costs money to capture the stats. As Rowan said, he pays a subscription. If we turned around and put them all for free on the internet, then we're not going to get Rowan's money. We're not going to get the club's money. And we're not going to have any money to pay the staff to capture the game. So 
Fair enough. Uh, what stats contribute to the pressure rating and how is it calculated? I know we did go through this a couple of years ago, but we probably got some new listeners to the pod in that time. And to be fair, it's always good to have a refresher on what the pressure rating is. Yep, happy to do it again. Um, same as probably the last one about the commercials is probably something you have to answer annually, but that's okay. Um, so yeah, when you hear about pressure points, that's basically the pressure on a disposal um, on the opposition's disposal. So that's where we're counting your pressure rating from. So when you're actually handballing or kicking the ball, how much pressure you're under or how much pressure as a team applying to those to the other team's disposal. So again, the pressure rating, it's usually a number, um, a three-figure number. Usually we sort of say, I think the competition average is about 180. Uh, competition average for a winner is about 183. Competition average for a loser is 177. So you can see if you put on, you know, about 183 points worth of pressure, you're, you're more likely to win. And all those points come from basically how hard it is um, to execute a disposal under each of those types of pressure. So we have four, six main types of pressure, four sort of in-play pressure. So physical pressure, so getting touched while you're kicking or handballing the ball and they actually, you know, the physical pressure is putting you off balance or it's grabbing your arm or grabbing your jumper and holding you back. Yep. That makes it 3.75 times harder to have an effective disposal. Right. If so if every, to... if every disposal is under physical pressure, you'd have a pressure rating of 375 because you move the, you move the decimal point, don't you? Yeah. We sort of take the decimal point away. So say it's, it's 3.75 times harder. So therefore you could even say it's 375%. Yeah. You know, harder sort of thing or um, more difficult to do it. So yeah, a physical pressure act will get 375 points for a team, a closing act. So that's actually running at the player front on or from the side. So it's actually giving him less room to kick or handball the ball and it's got to rush it away. That's 2.25 times harder. So again, 225 points are given out for all your closing acts. Chasing act, so that's chasing someone from behind. So they've still got a, you know, still got a good field of view in front of them, um, able to handball a ball, handball or kick the ball forward without too much um, disruption in front. But they're getting chased from behind, so they're obviously moving at a bit of pace. It's one point five, so you get one hundred and fifty points every time you're chasing someone from behind. And then there's corralling pressure, which is actually just sort of standing in the space. And you, you see it sometimes. A guy might be hemmed up on the pocket. Yeah. Um, and you sort of just stand there with your arms up saying, well, you can't run backwards because you're on the boundary line and you sort of, I'm not closing in on you and I'm not chasing you. I'm just going to stand here and make sure you, you've got nowhere to go. That's 1.2. So again, 120 points worth of pressure. And then you've got no pressure um, after a mark. So you take a mark and just play on in the space. And then you've got set position, um, which is all taken into account as well. So again, if you have two physical pressure disposals and two under set position, then you'll have 375 from your physical ones, but you're one you know, your 100 sort of coming from your standard set position will take your pressure factor back down. So it's, it's you know, very rare for a team to have anything over 200, uh, sorry, 220 is probably the highest we'll see in a pressure factor just because, you know, once the ball does get out of a stoppage, someone's likely to get a mark or a free kick and therefore it yep. relieves the pressure and starts again. Can I just ask you, Christian, you, you mentioned 12 guys at every game. So I was just, as you were running through that, I was thinking, gee, it'd be really hard to keep an eye on that like what? What? What's the breakup of what those twelve people do? There must be several of them just concentrate on that pressure stuff. Yeah, correct. So there's two of them capturing pressure. So the pressure again, something has to happen for pressure to be attributed to it. So we've got the main capture, which is capturing all the things that are happening. Here's a mark. Here's a handball. Here's a kick. You know, all this stuff that gets fed through to the pressure capture. So it says, here's all the kicks that main capture is called. Can you now tell me on each of these kicks what foot were they using? What was the intent of the kick? 
and who was putting sorry a kick or a handball and who was putting pressure what type of pressure was on that kick and who was putting it on so from that they get a kick and they go okay it was Joel Selwood had the first kick of the game it was on his left foot he was getting corralled uh he was kicking to a leading target um and then they move on and then it says all right the danger field handball so they just tag all that and it's sort of just you know the magic in the background combs it, puts it all together and says, all right, in the main caps, you've captured five kicks for Joel Selwood. And in pressure, they've said two of those are on his left, three were on his right, two were all his corralling pressure. And, you know, he's kicked to a league. How, how does all this happen in real time? It's yeah, crazy, so, isn't it? Yeah, basically, as I said, it's um, pressure's, pressure's 30 seconds to a minute behind. So they're yeah. not like, because as I said, they have to wait for the thing to happen first. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it is. It's sort of... Um, that's why it's quite hectic in here. Everyone's got a very um, it's mind-boggling way isn't it? of sort of it's you know it's it's like commentating, but we only commentate in the same way. So you know you listen to a pressure call and it's very boring, and it's just basically them saying left foot to corralling Selwood. I know, mate. Off I sat in the three. press box with it for so, uh, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound too exciting, but as I said, it, the, <laughs> the actual uh, information you can get out of it is amazing. There you go. Uh, let's whip through a few of these, uh, maybe a little bit quicker on some of them, if possible. What players are highly rated by the public and the media, but aren't rated well by champion data? So essentially the most overrated players, which I feel like that was Jake's burner, uh, but that's come from Jeremy on Twitter. Well, you said, let's be quick. So I think I can do this one quicker. I'm a, I'm a numbers man. So I can't, under, I can't tell you who the public and media rate highly. I don't have a number for that. You can't quantify it, I guess. You don't have a perception rating. So how do I measure Dustin Martin? We rate him as a, you know, 120 ranking points. What is the public rating at? I don't know. So I can't, I can't answer that question because I don't have a, a table of how highly rated each player is by the public and media. We've still managed to avoid the negative questions to champion data. I okay. do like that. Uh, does expected score account for seven-point plays? This comes from Tim. That is, if a team gets a point and then a goal directly because of that point, are they treated independently or is it like shot two wouldn't have happened without shot one? So I guess if like someone misses and then they intercept a kick in or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I love all these. Again, we sort of, you know, we've been speaking about expected scores a lot more and I've seen it a lot more on Twitter, um, you know, because I think, you know, even Fox Footy are talking about, it. I know Harold Sun had in their stat boxes and it seems to be, if you want to put it that way, a lot of people's beef with this stat is, oh, but if you kick a goal, the ball goes back to the centre. If you kick it behind, it's a different... That's not what we're looking at. We're just saying the guy that kicked the ball was standing in this spot <laughs> yep. at this time. He should have kicked six points, but he only got one, so therefore he lost five points. So we're not looking... It's not an expected game situation. It's not an expected what, you know, what happens next. It's just basically for every yep. shot you take what is your uh, output compared to the comp average? In, in saying that, I find it, uh, there's a lot of people that say you're missing this, you're missing this. The one thing I think expected scores is missing that no one sort of brings up, and I'm almost, I don't think I'm putting champion data in the shit or anything, but it's just something that you can't count, is when if a player has the ball in the goal square and decides to handball it to a teammate and stuffs it up instead of taking a shot, that's not actually count as your expected score. So everyone's sort of jumping on about, oh, if you kick a goal versus behind, it's like, well, hang on, if you don't even take the shot, you could be in a you could be standing in a spot that's worth five points to you, but if you don't take that shot, yeah, we don't record it as a missed shot, therefore you don't lose your expected score. So it's you know, it's one of those things you can't cover every single time something almost happens or doesn't happen. Yeah. But I think that's the one for me is we're only counting it when you actually take the shot. So if yeah, you're if you're if you're running into an open goal and get run down from behind, surely that expected score should have been a four or something like that if you're only 10 meters out. Yeah, but it won't be counted because there's no shot. So we're only looking at your your shots and how successful they were. So, yeah, people can argue the whole that a centre bounce happens after a goal yeah. and a kicking happens after a behind. But what if you don't take the shot at all? We're missing that as well. So 
it's it's a stat it's not an exact science but uh yeah as I said I found it quite interesting how many people sort of took that one number of expected score and sort of yeah twisted it into terms of oh but what happens what happens what happens it's like well no this is just telling you how accurate they basically are compared to the rest of the competition I can't get I can't get over how um obsessive people are about these sort of details. Whatever happened to I'm, – I'm sure this is all a result of fantasy football or whatever. Whatever happened to just watching a game of footy and enjoying it, you know? It's this, <laughs> this micro science now about expected scores and stuff. It's, it blows me away. It's good fun, Ryan, because according to expected score, the Dockers should have beaten the Suns on the weekend. Oh, really? Yeah, so there you yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just watched on the couch, says Emmett. Uh, and they reference the most points lost by injury. What does that mean? Yeah, so again, um, again, podcast that we've spoken about before, player ratings points that's using. So one of our player measures is, you know, how many your equity rating to a game, so how many points your, your game was worth on the scoreboard. Basically, that's looking at your season average of your rating points and um, for your team and who's missing. So West Coast could, again, I'll use them as an example. I know they're at the top of the ladder. They could be missing 10 players. But if they, from injury, but if those 10 players are all haven't played a game before and they're all debutants haven't played, well, you're, you're not missing any points from your best 22. Whereas Richmond could have one injury and that might be Dustin Martin, who's worth 20 points to the team. So we say, well, they've actually lost 20 points of injury this week. West yeah. Coast have lost zero points. So it's, a, it's just taking into account your best 22 players or, you know, relative to best 22 players and looking at the ratings and how much you're missing each week based on season average. So. Very good. Harry Quill, got a couple from him. Are spoils counted towards metres gained? No. I've, uh, they, they, Should it be? Well, I, mean, that's... No, I don't know. I've, I've, again, we sit there and we, we openly and, you know, we challenge ourselves and, you know, change our definitions and things. I've argued that there's been a few spoils. We clearly want it to be metres gained. Mm. But there is a few spoils where, again, it's the kicker, kicked it, I just get a fingertip to it and the ball keeps traveling another 10 meters. Should I lose 10 meters? You know, so am I getting negative 10 meters because my spoil went backwards or is that kick still traveling an extra 10 meters after I've touched it? So yeah, I see what you different mean. ones, um, but at currently no, not all, no, no spoils will gain meters gain. Um, and then, Oh, this is, this is tough. Best consistent launches of the ball by fist or score chain attacking spoilers. Let me, let me try and, let me try and distill this. Um, whose spoils contribute to the most attacking and scoring chains well i could probably go into a deep dive and get a better number for you but the one number i have got probably doesn't quite answer the question but we do do spoil efficiency so basically a spoil that is followed by a teammate or a stoppage so you spoil it and it's followed by an out of bounds or you spoil it spoils to advantage yeah we'll get counters effective basically if you spoil it and it goes straight down to the opposition it's ineffective so looking at the top spoilers this year, um, and again, looking at sort of there's 44 players with at least 30. Um, and you can see spoil efficiency is quite varied. So the worst player is 54% spoil efficiency, and that's yep. Dougal Howard. Uh, so half you know half the time he spoils it, the, the opposition's going to get the ball. The other end of the table, Blixarves is 81% from his 32 spoils. And Jacob Wiedering, um who I've commented as a Carlton supporter, I feel like he he really does direct his spoils really well, if that mm. makes sense. Mm. Uh, so he's had 71 spoils for 75% um, efficiency. So there is, there is, uh, there's safer spoilers and then there is uh, the riskier spoilers, if you like. There you go. Maybe that can be uh, um, Jared Barker's deep dive. 
next week or something like that. We can look at the most consistent and uh, spoilers who can spoil to advantage. Uh, last one, last Ask Champion Data question. Uh, this is from me, actually. What is the timeline on the game reviews? As in, how long does it take to fix or credit someone with a kick if it was misallocated during a call? Yeah, so it's it's live. And as I said, with the 12 people working, so we've got the main caller. So that's the first point. So he says what he thinks all the stats are. Then you've got a back caller um, who's basically confirming all those stats. So back caller sits there silently for most of the game unless they need to jump in and fix things. Um, so they're the first two points. And then, as I said, so then we've got someone that needs to plot where everything happens, the graphical capture. So they need to plot every handball and kick. So they're another level of QA. If they go to plot a handball and, or, you know, a possession and it's not there, then they'll be able to bring it up and go, hang on, I, I've got three possessions here for Hawthorne. You've only called two. So there's another level of QA. Uh, and the pressure guys are doing their thing, like looking at every disposal and what pressure they're under, so confirming that every player was the right player. And then on top of that, we've got another one, which another capture person, which we call time capture, which is basically tagging every single stat to the exact frame that it's happening on the video. So that allows us, that's going to be for more GPS and linking, um, you know, where someone is on the field to exactly the time of day that he had this kick rather than, you know, everything we capture is within two seconds, two or three seconds. When you're trying to measure that up to GPS, it's quite different. So if we can get the exact time of day that this guy had a kick, we can probably get the exact position on the ground he was once GPS gets there. Um, so again, it's all, it's an ongoing process. We can call things live and a minute later, we've got a little spreadsheet. We just use Google docs uh, in the background. I'll get a message. And again, I'm one of the back callers. So a message will pop up. Hey, you've got, you've got Toby green getting the handball. It was actually Tom green, or you've got a handball for Toby green, but it looks like he gets tackled and it misses the ball. So there's continual, you know, all the way through the quarter after goals, you can have a quick look at chains of play during quarter time and things like that. Yeah. But post-match it's 25 minutes. I think we have, and that's an agreement with clubs and media. It's 25 minutes is when all the clubs and media want their final files. So there you go. Um, that is our, that's our deadline, but again, a lot of games are done within 10, 15 minutes of post-match, but, but again, because we can, you know, as a back caller, I love goals and I love stoppages because it gives me time to go back and look at previous things. So very, very quickly. I know you've asked this out of self-interest, Matt, and I do this too. The end of each quarter, I'll scribble down the most significant team stats and player stats. How long, Christian, should we wait so that what we write down remains the case? When um, it is? No, it's hard to answer. I mean, again, different games, different things. I would... One of the things we pride ourselves on live is trying to get the right amount of team stats. You might not quite know the play, especially with tackles and things like that. And again, it's more at tier two level, but we sort of say, well, we'd rather call an unknown handball than just not call one at all. Yeah. If you're looking at numbers for teams, they're probably going to be right at quarter time. The, the clearance is going to be 31 to 29, but Clayton Oliver might have three clearances instead of four. because yeah. yeah. one. So it's, it's hard to answer, but I mean, they're only going to be out by one or two, things like that. And as I said, if you print it off at the start of the second quarter, your first quarter should be signed off and finished. But during quarter time, it can be that whole eight minutes that you could be making slight changes. But as I said, it's never like five stats or six stats in a bit of play. It's always just like, do we want that tackle or not? You know, did he, as I said, I think I've said this on the podcast, the last three or four years trying to work out what a handball is has gotten harder and harder. And I think you can see that from visually the game. The things that the players get away with now compared to five years ago, it's a lot of the time it's there. Clear throws, the umpire's called handballed at play on, we go back, look at, you know, slow-mo vision say can't pay that a handball. So, yeah, the, the as I said, the, the overarching team numbers should be pretty much correct all the way through. There you go. I've been tagged in a, twi a Twitter thread saying that 
Hi again, Champion Data. You credited Jack Noon's the goal assist to Jack Silvani in the fourth instead of Nick Newman. So there Correct. you go. Maybe one day. Yeah, that was a misclick. And was that that came from Nick Newman's mum? Did it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, who, who else? Who else would even notice that? I don't know, but yeah, I remember. I remember. I did that game, and I remember fixing it. Um, yeah, there you go. So it just takes time to flush through, does it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, there you go. All right. Well, those are uh, concerned at home. That's what happens. Hey, um, thanks for that, Christian. We will continue to endeavor to answer these questions as they come in. Um, so I, I know that we don't mention it too often, but we are always open to questions. So hashtag ask champion data um, on Twitter, or you just tweet us at footy tips and we can get those looked at. Uh, we're running a little bit short on time, so we might whip through these. Is the hype justified or is it hyperbole? Rowan, was Gold Coast's win over Fremantle the club's best ever? Uh, I'd say not. Um, I mean, close to it, but I would have thought, right off the top of my head, I would have thought their win over Richmond last year at Marvel Stadium was better because they were at a lower ebb. Richmond was the reigning premier and it was on the road where they've stunk it up ritually for years. So I would have thought, you know, they're always tough to beat at home, even when they're not going well. So I would have mm. thought the Richmond win was better. Does um does Stuart do well, does Gold Coast have a bit of a conundrum because there's this Alistair Clarkson shadow looming over the entire AFL. Stuart Jew, his his job's been questioned before, but now he's reeled off two of the more impressive wins of his career in a row. Where do you see this sort of confluence of events leading? It really, it really does. You know what it reminds me of? Um, it reminds me a bit of Brett Ratton at Carlton when they wanted to get Malthouse in. Yeah, it does. And, and, you know, gee, you'd hope it didn't end up going the same way. But it just takes one sort of bad result for a fell swoop to just come down and... Well, not, not only that, that I think in retrospect, Carlton would say we messed with our culture that had been built. And um, and it's not to look, I've got all the time in the world for Clarko, and I'm sure he could build a great culture. But I think Stuart Dew is building a real tightness about that group. So, yeah, mm. look, it's, it's going to be a tough one for him. Uh, Christian, Geelong's biggest concern is their list profile and the age. Um. A little bit, but again, sort of the next part of your question was probably going to be, is it, you know, the next part would be, is it list profile, is it game style? And it's almost hand in hand both. So at the moment, their, their list profile is old. They're even, you know, continually their best players, I just looked at the ages, you know, of top rating players that sell was number one. So 33, 31, 29 years old, 33 years old, 31 years old, 32, 32. They're their top rated players this year. Yeah. But they have sort of switched game style. So they've gone to a new game style. So that theory of can you teach an old dog new tricks? Well, we're going to find out with Geelong because they're clearly gone with the same personnel, um, but sort of switched their game style a little bit to sort of look a bit more on the outside and sort of to take away that bully ball that they've been playing. So, um, yeah, the concern for me is just how how well they can sort of keep this adjustment up and will it hold them through to finals, um, this new game style they're playing with the, with the same old guys that they've had for the last five years. Mm, we had this discussion on the roundtable column, espn.com.au forward slash AFL Rowan. Um, and the consensus was that the window is probably closing on the Cats. Yeah, I think it is. Look, I'm always loath to write them off, but I've, I get that feeling with them now that they're, they're still going to be good enough to push for even the top four, but there's clearly something which prevents them beating the very best. And, you know, that was shown up in all its ugliness against Melbourne in the preliminary final last year, wasn't it? So yeah. um, it's a really tough one for them because you keep going to the well. You you know, the, the narrative should be you end up getting a sip and they've done it so well and for so long 
Um, but at the expense of what? I mean, you look at their list profile and there's just a complete lack or a vacuum of players that have played between 20 and 100 games who look like likely types. That's true. And I, I, look, I mean, the, the, the acknowledgement that that needs to be addressed urgently is in the pushing ahead of a guy like Max Holmes, who, yeah. you know, probably wasn't necessarily ready for that much senior footy last year, but ended up playing half a season and played every week this year till he got injured. They want to get those guys in. But, you know, you're, you're a victim of your own success. And, you know, it's a very special club and coaching staff and whatever who can both aim for the top but simultaneously be planning for the future. It's so hard to do. And um, I, th- I think generally they've got it right. But at some point you end up paying a price for that. Exactly right. I was um, I was at Leon Cameron's last game and I, I actually asked him, I said, what what's the legacy that you want to leave at this club? And he said, Honestly, it's been a tough slog over such a long time. Not not in the sense that he's got to be planning for the future and planning for current success, but he said that he was distracted by the fact that you have to grow the game in, in the West of Sydney or in anywhere in New South Wales. And a lot of his mental energy is directed towards that as well as trying to get this club up and about for finals and and, and playing games all the time. Really good. I, I made that point in the piece I wrote about Cameron that you know he, he was up against challenges that other coaches didn't have. That was one of them. The other one was the systematic rating of their playing stocks from other clubs because their players were more vulnerable because they were in that unfamiliar, untraditional environment. And, you know, they'd perhaps rather go and play for a Collingwood or a Carlton, you know? So, um, and, and that's the attraction of guys like Clarkson as coach for those uh, untraditional markets like Gold Coast and GWS. 100%. Uh, last one before we wrap things up. Christian, luck with injuries can play a big part in a rise up the ladder. And I know that having champion data and luck in the same question is always fraught with danger, but do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. And again, it's probably one part of the game similar to accuracy that everyone wants to talk about it, but no one wants to give it enough credit. You know, we don't want to use injuries as an excuse. We don't want to use injuries as an excuse. But I mean, even just looking at this year, the, the teams that have had you know, use the least players. Melbourne's used the least least amounts of players with 30. Uh, I think at the other end of the scales, West Coast with up to 46 players this year. Um, and then if you look at who's had the most players play every game, it's Brisbane. Brisbane have had uh, 16 players play all nine games so far. The next most is 13. So Melbourne, stability in terms of they don't need to use many players, 30. Brisbane, stability in terms of, you know, they've had 16 players, probably all part of their best 22 being able to play every week this year. So, we talk about it every year. Injuries is just something that when you don't have them, you got to make the most of, you know, you got to make the most of your luck. And that's what Melbourne and Brisbane are doing. And we sort of said with Brisbane previously, and it started to happen. They did have a great run with injuries um, previously two years. And then Hipwood got injured. And I think Danahan thought, oh, the injury's coming. Well, they haven't quite hit them hard yet, but it, it, you never know what's, that, what's around the corner. And you can see from West Coast as well. I don't know if they would have been top eight but the injuries and, you know, the situation they find themselves in, it's just imploded the club. Like you just, you just can't handle that, uh, that amount of injuries. Well, look, look at, look at Richmond, you know, Richmond back in the hunt now, uh, no coincidence, you know, Martin Lambert, Presti of Boston yeah. back in, back in yeah. harness, you know. There you go. It is interesting. And, and sometimes you can be lucky with, with things like Danaher goes down, but Hipwood comes back the very next week. Uh, you know, sometimes luck is, is just one of those things in footy, isn't it? Um, footy tips, you can tip with us, footytips.com.au forward slash the ESPN footy pod. Not too late to join. You can put yourselves up against uh, myself, Christian, Jake. I don't know if you two are going too well, but I'm, I know that I'm still up and about, so we can, uh, we can touch on that another time. Too, what was that? 
I should be, and that's your nine tips. You should. Right have you year. joined? Feel free to join footytips.com.au <laughs> forward slash ESPN footy pod. Guys at home, thanks for listening. Like I said, get your Ask Champion data questions in. We do love answering those, uh, and we will speak to you in the next episode. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN footy pod wherever you get your podcasts.